0: Welcome to The Pastor's Cut. This week we're on with Dan Osborne, pastor of our Forest Glen location, and talking about what got cut from his sermon on Acts chapter four, verses 32, all the way up to chapter five, verse 11. And a listener question as well about raising hands in worship. So if you have any questions, we'd love to discuss what you're wanting to hear more about. Go ahead and send those into podcast at parkcommunitychurch.org, or just drop a comment wherever you happen to be listening. Uh, But let's get started. I'm Trevor Lovell, and this is The Pastor's Cut with Dan Osborne. Dan, great to have you with us this morning. Good to good to have you on the show again. Thanks, thanks Trev. Good to be here. Yeah, yeah, man. I feel like it's a it's a it's a sweet time in Chicago right now. The weather is finally starting to break. Spring is here. Summer is on the way. And uh, so I just got to ask, what when you think about spring and summer, what's something that you're looking forward to? What, what's something that gives you some hope right now?
1: Uh, we have a backyard uh, for the first time, which is. Uh, it's like a big, um, if you don't know what that is, it's a big piece of grass <laughs> where our kids can go play and it's fenced in. So, uh, yeah, we're, we're really excited about that. Um, you know, the other thing is uh, we, we live in Portage Park and, uh, right at Six Corners and have like, we, we love our block. Like the last couple of nights, too, as it's getting warmer, I feel like we moved here during COVID. So it was harder to to get to know neighbors and just a slower process than normally we'd like uh, for that to happen. Uh But the last couple of nights, I mean, we're just all out letting the kids run around. You know, it's like there's a bunch of kids on our block. Uh And so we're just getting to hang out, spend time with them. And we we absolutely love it. So I'm looking forward to a summer full of that. Yeah. You know, getting to spend
0: time uh, with neighbors. That's just, I enjoy that. That is cool. I mean, it almost feels like last summer. Um, like when I think about summer activities, I almost like skip last summer and go back to two, like two summers ago. Cause that was like the last time some of the normal things happened. And
1: Right. Right. I mean, well, I mean this whole like COVID season, I, I'm a Marvel fan. So I feel like COVID is like the blip, you know, in between the infinity wars and, uh, end game, like it just doesn't count and we're <laughs> coming out and, it's the blip. Yeah,
0: yeah. We're back now.
1: Now we're back. <laughs> now we're back.
0: Yeah. And so, Dan, you preached on um, you know Acts chapter four verse thirty-two all the way to chapter five verse eleven um, at Forest Glen this past weekend. Could you give us a, a quick recap of your sermon?
1: Yeah, yeah. So um, broadly, this is a message about hypocrisy, and I think that that's uh, that sounds like a really churchy uh, word. Uh, for people to use, but actually I think it's a really important one for us to understand and recognize that, uh, in, in light of a lot of recent news about Christianity, and I mean, broadly, not just like evangelical Christianity, but Christianity as a whole in the West, I think is really easily labeled with this word hypocrisy. Um, that, you know, there's stories coming out left and right, different, uh, Christian leaders who, uh, you know, it's discovered they have this whole you know, other side of their life that nobody knew was hidden, covered up, that kind of stuff, uh, which is horrible. Um, and yeah, I think, I think we'll talk about more about that in a, in a minute. Um, but as these things are coming to light, and, and I think that I think the Lord is the one who's bringing these things to light, uh, for the church to, to deal with this. But, um, it, it puts Christians in this category of you're, you're being hypocrites. Um, so I think that question of like, how does God actually view hypocrisy is a really important one for us to consider. And so in Acts chapter five, uh, we kind of get the first picture of God's dealing with hypocrisy within the church. Um, and it's built on this, you know, two, two snapshots, two pictures, uh, of the local church. And I think if you go back into chapter four, uh, the end of chapter four, you get a picture of the church at its best. Uh, and the church is out in unity. They are uh, practicing evangelism and generosity. Like one of the major things that marks the Christian community very early on is their radical generosity, which is interesting to note, like in um, around this same time, you have like the the Qumran communities the uh, around the Dead Sea area. You know, some of the folks listening may have heard of something called the Dead Sea Scrolls, Right. It's a religious community, people coming together with uh, really closely tied to Judaism. But but they had demands on their people. If you were going to join this community before you could get in, you needed to sell all your property and you had to give this money to the community like that was the ticket in. Uh, and at the same time, you have these, you know, earliest Christians uh, who are in practice doing very similar things, but none of the obligation like that, that wasn't your ticket into the community. It was a reflection of like, the Holy Spirit's work in someone's life, someone's life trying to producing this like liberation of clinging to your things. Um, and so you have this snapshot. I mean, the church is just a, this very genuine, authentic community uh, in chapter four. Uh, and right after that, you get chapter five, which is, uh, I think if people had never read the story, never heard the story, it is, it's wild. It's absolutely wild. Ananias and Sapphira um, basically come in and, and they represent, at least as I talked about it, the church at its worst. Uh, because if the church at its best is genuine, the church at its worst is acting, right? It's There's a fakeness to it. Um, and what they do is they... They want to look like they're practicing the same generosity. They want to look like the church at its best without really having any of the follow through. Uh, and so in front of everybody else, they, you know, they talk about the fact that you've sold their property. They're laying the money at the apostles' feet. Uh, but what, you know, nobody else knows is that they have kept back a portion uh, for themselves. Uh, and so, you know, they just they want to look like they're playing the part. And, uh, they die. Uh, Peter confronts them. Uh, like, th- when you read the passage, it, it's like the Holy Spirit. Peter is the prophet that he's talking about early on in, in Acts. Like, this is, this is part of the work of the Holy Spirit in the community. Is he's a, he's a, he recognizes by the Holy Spirit that they have lied. They've not, they've not actually given everything. Uh, to the church and both Ananias and Sapphira die. And it ends with this, you know, great fear came upon the whole church uh, and heard all who heard these things. Uh, and so, you know, I think it's, this is a passage that, you know, I spend a lot of time talking about. What does it mean for us as followers of Christ to walk in fear before God? And there there should be, I think, a healthy fear. And you can see the way that this story, this had a huge impact on Peter. Uh, and you see it in his letters later on, like in, in 1 Peter 1.17, he talks about, uh, you know, how um, if we're going to call on God as father, we are to conduct ourselves in fear throughout the time of our exile. And you recognize that, uh, you know, Peter's still wrestling and processing through a lot of what he saw in this moment. And it shows up. Uh God's uh judgment is not slow as some count slowness slowness, um, but he is patient, not desiring that any should perish, right? That that's in Second Peter. Um yet he still does have judgment. And so uh I think this is a profound picture of uh God's God being rightfully enraged at hypocrisy. And that's not something any of us should take lightly.
0: Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And even to that end, um, you know, one of the things I appreciated that you did in the message is um you you moved into addressing like, you know, big names of Christians recently who have um, you know, it's come to light that uh there's been some like some terrible things happening in their in their personal lives, like Robbie Zacharias being one of them in that you um, yeah, you addressed that, uh, by way of this passage and, and kind of gave some ways to think about that and to feel about it. And could you, could you share a little bit about that here?
1: Yeah. Um, it, it, it's a, it's a very sensitive topic. And I think, uh, you know, if some folks may, may not be familiar with Ravi Zacharias, he was, uh, uh, world renowned Christian author, speaker, philosopher, apologist, evangelist. He wore a lot of different hats, but he traveled the world, uh, to represent the Christian faith in all of these types of conferences or, you know, what sometimes I like, think, think like Billy Graham type revival kind of thing. And, uh, someone who's, you know, on the university hosting events, engaging with non-believers and the, um, folks from the secular worldview. And I mean, he, he had built this reputation for a very, uh, clear and winsome defense of Christianity, right? Had, had, I mean, it, it is not an understatement to say that he uh, has had a direct influence on in the spiritual lives of millions of people around the world, right? And so, um, huge figure. And yet in the last couple of years, uh, for probably the last five years or so, pe- like slowly people have been starting to raise some like, Hey, I, there's, there's something not right, uh, going on there. Um, and in, you know, rumors, allegations, and and then in the couple months after he died, he died in May of 2020 this year, uh, their ministry, Ravi Zikharais International Ministry did a full investigative report to look into the allegations and it revealed like years, years of, uh, predatory sexual misconduct. And, uh, you know, it just like was a, Kind of a bombshell in the Christian community, and that that that's not the only story, right? There are so many other stories that have that have popped up, and I I think I believe they will continue to come up uh, over the next couple of um, over the next couple of uh, months uh, and years, which is really sad to think about. Um, but just in. Uh, going through and, and thinking through these stories, one of the things I noticed, Trev, early on is we, we all started to see articles uh, from uh, people, like, I'm not going to say the, the names of organizations, but big, big articles coming out like, okay, Christian leader, what can you learn from Ravi Zacharias, right? It, like, immediately after this stuff came out, And it's like, th- this is not the time to sit down and think about what can what can you learn from this? Don't do that that's that's what we can take away right now. like now is the time to be to experience like a righteous anger over the the victims that he had created that people had been slandered for years trying to to draw attention to this and uh, you know the same thing happens in in other it's happened in other big Christian circles. so uh, now is the time to be like angry over that, the injustice of this. And I think what this passage highlights is that, you know, th- th- that kind of hypocrisy, God does not turn a blind eye to this. Like he he is what the story of Ananias and Sapphira highlight for us in a very tangible way is that, that God is rightly enraged over hypocrisy. Uh, and, and honestly, that, that that's a terrifying thought. I told this to the congregation as I was getting up to preach this message. I, I feel like this is this is the hardest sermon I've ever had to preach because it's just like the, there is such a weightiness to the things that you see in in this uh, in this story, and and I think from there, uh, you know, you have it very clearly moves into this space of what does it mean to walk in fear which I defined as an awe or reverence uh, before a perfect and holy God who, who we, we do not live incognito mode before God. Right. Now, I mean, you got to ask the question, did, is what happened to Ananias and Sapphira? Is that what happened to Ravi? I don't know. That, I do think God can still do that. Um, but I, I would be very, very slow to
0: say that, it's, it's like a one, and one to one parallel. Yeah. Yeah. To draw that connection and be definite about it. It, it is interesting in like just in certain passages in scripture, just uh, like sometimes God can feel so um it's almost like we soften God in some ways and make him seem more, more comfortable for us. I think in some ways we even bring God down to our level and, and imagine the relationship in that way and miss that. There's like a, there's a creature creator um, aspect to it and that God is holy and there's a a severity and a gravity to his holiness that you you get glimpses of at different points throughout scripture and this this is definitely one of them that um yeah they they help shape and cultivate that that fear of the lord when we really sit with these stories um yeah man i appreciate you just leaning into that i know it's not an easy easy thing to discuss and so it really um Trip, yeah, I can just i appreciate. just say one more thing about this like yeah so i i feel like i am
1: spending a lot of time uh Reading through some topics in, in the wake of, uh, several ch- local Chicago pastors and, um, and, uh, news about Ravi, just thinking about, uh, th- the topic of abuse. And I do not think the church has, has thought well around abuse in all forms. Uh, and, you know, we at Park, I know we, we want to take some time to, uh, to step into this space to really think well and biblically about this, um, and book? and uh, you know make make sure that we we care for for victims who have who have experienced abuse well, and and see the gospel bring true healing to where they're at, but also leaving space for them to, uh, to grieve and mourn over the stuff. And any, anytime these stories come out, it immediately opens up wounds again from people. Uh, and so as a pastor, I think that that's, this is something that is, has hits very close to home uh, for me, because I know that, you know, there's folks in my congregation who've experienced that. Um, and what, what, Part of what I wanted to wanted to do with this message is to remind people that uh God does see your pain he He is the God who is there uh and the, the God who's with us in our pain and enters into our pain and suffering with us, yeah
0: so yeah, that's good, that's good. And so one of the other things with this passage is that, um, you know, just in, in like the direction you took with the sermon, there's a lot of material, a lot of content, there's a richness to it. But then even with this, there's so much going on kind of underneath the surface of these old Testament things. And so, um, so I'm looking forward to discussing as well, just what got cut from this for you? Yeah. I mean, so a couple things, uh,
1: a couple of questions that come up, like, like you said, we, we tend to, um, Bring God down to our level. And yeah, and then we're surprised when we encounter stories like this. Uh, and you know, there's this is actually a retelling of several stories in, in the Old Testament showing that the problem of sin is not absolutely eradicated from the Christian community. So, I mean, from a base level, I mean, this is this represents this is the Genesis three of the New Testament right because in genesis chapter 3 you have adam eve and satan in the serpent uh who are uh who experience the fall through deceit right and then in acts chapter 5 this new community the holy spirit indwelling filling people uh you have satan and a husband and wife team again who like things begin to unravel uh, through them. Uh, it's not a one-to-one parallel. And I, I think what we see is that the gospel is actually overcoming evil and the effect of sin. But at this point, uh, it, it is not eradicated. This is why we, we still struggle with things today. Uh, sin is not absolutely eradicated from our lives. We, we look forward to that day when it will happen. Uh, but this is, this is showing us that it's still there and real within the Christian community. We shouldn't be surprised. Uh, when, uh, we see the effect of sin within our churches, cause it's, it's there. Uh, and Satan as an enemy of the church is going to try and do whatever he can, uh, to get in and create chaos, uh, within the Christian community. It's going to happen. Uh, this is, I mean, you see Joshua chapter seven, the sin of Achan, uh, uh, I mean this is a Achan you remember is one who uh after the fall of Jericho uh God says they're they're not supposed to take anything uh from the plunder like they devote everything to destruction and Achan is somebody who comes back and you know he steals stuff and hides it away uh which is interesting that that one of the word uh, the word that um is used here to talk about uh Ananias keeping back some of the the proceeds the I think the only other time that word is used is in the story of Achan, uh to keep back in the in the uh Septuagint, the Greek text. Uh that's the other place where that word is used, like Achan kept it back. And so it's a tie back to Joshua chapter seven. And of course you know at the end, Achan is uh condemned, judged for uh uh
0: for what he's done. Yeah. You know? Yeah, and the ground actually like opens up and swallows him and his family, right? Like that's how it comes comes to a pretty brutal end. That that is another story with Moses. Um oh, yeah. Achan is is stoned and his
1: family. Yeah. Um, and then of course, uh uh Aaron's sons offering strange fire in uh in Leviticus chapter ten, uh, and then consumed uh by uh Consumed by the fire. What's interesting in a lot of these stories, and I didn't talk about this, is they are all very slow. Like if you, if you look at it from a 30,000 foot view, it, it looks very clearly like God's judgment ends in their death in, in the moment, right? But the, the way that it's worded in the biblical text is very nuanced, right? Like that's not what Acts chapter five says. It doesn't say that they were judged and, and killed. It says, at Peter's words, they fell down, and you get this strange phrase that you don't see anywhere else in the New Testament. They breathed their last. Right? So it's, it's, it's distancing a bit God from, from this act of immediate judgment. Uh, and, and I think you, you the, the intention, same thing happens in Leviticus chapter 10. The intention is to, is to draw, to, is draw the focus on this is the result of what they have done. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. 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 Man, that's good. Okay. So there was a question that, that you were, uh, you had brought up earlier that you're saying, looking forward to discussing this with all of that, what you're saying there. Um, and and just the question of like, were they, were they actually, were they Christians? And if so, then how does this play into their, uh, like their eternity? You know? So I, yeah, I'd love to hear you talk more about that. Yeah. So I,
1: I know there's disagreement about this. Uh, some disagreement. I, I think it stems from the fact that uh, the question of like, how could God actually uh, respond in judgment to um, how can God respond in judgment to Christians who have uh, been forgiven by him in the gospel? Uh, and uh, so from, from that place, and I think that's a fair question. It's a, it's a very fair question. Um, And I think people try and extrapolate from some of the details uh, of the story uh, that, uh, you know, it, it looks like Ananias and Sapphira really were not genuine Christians at all. The problem with going down that route is, uh, a couple things. One, the the evidence that would point to the fact that they're not Christians is just not very strong. I mean, you have this line in there that, uh, Satan filled and, you know, Peter asked why Satan filled your heart to do this? Uh, and the, the thought goes, well, I mean, uh, really nowhere else, you know, like it doesn't say anywhere that Satan can fill the heart of a Christian. True. It also, th- th- that line doesn't really show up anywhere else. So it- it's hard to say either way. And what we do know is that, uh, you know, from other parts of even the book of Acts and things that Peter says later on. Right. Your enemy is like a prowling lion around you, trying to uh, seeking to destroy you. Right. There, there is a very real sense in which uh, Satan, as the enemy of the church and Christians, uh, can have an influence on us. Um, and so I think I think when we make sense of uh, some of the, the full details, I don't see any justification for saying that they weren't in the Christian community as Christians. Um, I, I I think if, if you say that they're not Christians, then it's kind of like, what, what is the point of this story? Like, why would this be recorded, uh, in, 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 in the, uh, in the scriptures for us? Why would this be something God would want to hand down for, you know, for the rest of Christianity to look back to as a story? Um, and the other piece is when we stand forgiven before God, that does not mean we are removed entirely from earthly consequences, uh, and we do not need to read into this story that uh, Ananias and Sapphira are, are you know, uh, that they cannot be in, you know, in eternity with with Christ, right in in heaven. Uh, that that's not something we need to jump to. I think I think this is a problem in uh, Christian circles today. Um, and I'll, I'll pick on, uh, you know, conservative evangelical circles. I think sometimes we, we shy away from very real earthly consequences for our actions. Uh, and they should be there, right? Like, uh, a, uh, I keep picking on this stuff. Like a, a pastor who is, uh, shown to be, uh, sexually abusive needs to be in prison, not a new church. And that's, that's a different question of like, could they be forgiven? I mean, yet before God, yes, God can forgive. Um But that doesn't mean, you know, there's no consequences for the things that they do. This is what you see in, this, in the story of Achan. I think very clearly you see this in Achan. Uh Joshua chapter 7, the whole point of Joshua chapter 7 is that God may grant corporate consequences for private sin. The things that we think we can hide from everybody else that will not affect anybody else. Uh, God sees those things and there may be corporate consequences for them. Like people around Aiken, including his family, die because of the things that he has done. And yet at the end of the story, he is actually forgiven before, uh, he receives judgment. Uh, and so I think in a similar way that, you know, it, I, I believe Ananias and Sapphira are Christians. And, and, and that gives us, in some sense, it gives us a confidence that, uh, within the church, God, God, the, the gospel is not a get out of jail free card, uh, and, and God does take, uh, especially moral failure, serious within within the within the church. You got to ask the question, and this is this is a really hard one. Um, you know, if if God can still do this, what He did to Ananias and Sapphira, if He can still do it, why doesn't He do it more often? Right. Um, why, why don't we see this happening more? And, and I think the, the harder question, uh, that some of the folks listening may, may be asking, uh, I don't know. A lot of people have asked this question in the past is if God can do this, why didn't he do it to the person who did that to me? You know? Yeah. And, and that, like that is such an important question. And, and I, and I feel like we we, I don't want to skip skip right over that, uh, but you know, the the a lot of times we, we don't know, we don't know why he has allowed certain things to happen, um, and yeah, I mean, I think we we that what we have to cling to is what we do know of God in in the scriptures uh, that we, we're not promised a life removed from suffering that we live in a broken world. And there, there is very real evil that takes place. Uh, and yet we also believe in Christ that things, uh, you know, can be restored, um, and, and made right. Like pain will be made right. There will be a day when there are no more tears, no more suffering, no sorrow. Um, so, Yeah. A lot of this, a lot of these questions, Trev, I think come from the fact that, stem from the fact that, uh, we often in Christian circles don't know how to sit in grief with people. We don't know how to process grief. And like a lot of times when someone is grieving around us, we just want to get them to move on to the next thing.
0: You, You know, what's interesting about that is, um, you know, um, Someone just said this to me recently. They they quoted that exact passage, actually Revelation twenty uh, verses four and five. God, God Himself will wipe away every tear from our eyes. And she spoke of it in the sense of that. That's almost like like there's going to be a final mourning that will take place. Like before before God wipes away the tears, there will be a, a moment there, like on the brink of eternity, where where like we mourn together, like a final. um I guess a final moment of grief where we mourn all of the things, um, you know, that we've gone through in this life before we enter into the joys of eternity. And it's like, that needs to happen. And, uh, and then it's, it's after that, that God wipes away all of our tears and all of those things go, but you can't, you can't just skip past that. There is that moment of grief, which is, um, it's interesting to think about. Um, yeah, wasn't necessarily in my charts in, uh, in, in Bible college, but, uh but it makes sense. Yeah. Man. Okay. I've enjoyed this conversation so much. We just got one more thing to cover. Got a listener question for today. Um, got a, got a, a good one here. So um, why do people raise their hands while singing at church? Why do people raise their hands while singing at church? Um, that
1: seems a random question. Kind of shifting gears a little bit. I know. I know. Yeah. Um, and I think, uh, part of it, Paul talks about raising hands, men lifting holy hands, uh, when we pray in, in 1st Timothy 2. Uh, I think it's, I think we truncate a lot of like this idea of worship, uh, in the church today to like one particular moment. And I think, uh, what, what I, I feel like happens uh, a lot in, in the churches that I've been involved in in the past, uh, you know, like it it tends to be this, this posture of, uh, almost like this posture of abandonment before the Lord. So I think some people do it because that's what they've seen people do, uh, growing up. Um, but, but I think what worship is supposed to be, um, is a posture. And so like when we are with our all, uh, I think that that is one way that we kind of reflect, you know, like an abandonment before the Lord, which is a good thing. You know, like David dances before the Lord as an
0: abandonment before
1: him. Like, I, I got everything in front of you. Um,
0: yeah, yeah. And, and his I, wife even is like, you look silly. You should stop yeah, doing that. Stop and doing then, that. Yeah. Yeah. And there's, yeah. <laughs> uh, but, but God like approves and is pleased with David's dancing. Yeah. And so there, it's interesting how there's a sense in which, like sometimes there's like a self-consciousness with, am I going to look funny? Are people going to, but then when you draw that comparison, it's like, well, that's actually part of why you're doing it is to not like, to yeah. not be swayed by that. But it's, it's a sense of, you know, like we're doing it corporately when we're gathered to worship, but we're also like, we're drawing near to God and yeah, yeah that's
1: so good. Yeah. I think, I think in Western culture, we have a, you know, we, we just would talk a lot about uh, individualism and introspection and. Uh, so even in worship, like in, in singing, we, we think about, okay, how does this reflect on me a lot more than in other cultures? Um, you know, th- th- there's, there's Christian songs that are like, uh, I forget one. It's like, I think it's a Chris Talman songs in the, the chorus, like we raise up holy hands to praise a holy God. Uh, and you know, I'll see like people who absolutely refuse to lift up their hands. <laughs> Like they're singing the words and I'm like you're lying right now like you, you are singing and lying. Yeah right? because you're not I, doing what you're saying you're doing.
0: I remember the hill song song back in the day uh the stand and I'll stand oh. with with arms arms high and heart abandoned and heart abandoned. <laughs> yeah.
1: yeah yeah and people are like I'm going to yeah. put my hands in my pockets. <laughs> I was like that. I was like like I would be enraged early on as a kid like or not a kid uh when I was a new Christian like I don't I don't like clapping. And I and I especially did not like clapping if someone stood at a microphone and said, all right, let's clap today or something like I'm just I'm like, I'm not about that. Don't tell me. Don't tell me what to do. Yeah. I'll clap
0: if I want to clap. I'll raise my hands if <laughs> I want to raise my hands. Yeah, that's funny. That's but, funny. But there is like a freedom in in worship in those things. I found that there's so there's like there's different postures, like raising the hands. But then there's also like. Some people will do this. I think in like an Anglican or a Lutheran context, where there's like a more formal benediction, where they'll they'll place their hands almost in like a like palms up at the waist, like a like an openness to receive, um, almost like receiving that blessing. And then I've I've seen that as well. It, like that happens in worship. And I, I'll, honestly, I'll do that from time to time. And I think that's tying in with uh, with the being filled with the Spirit, right? That um, even in Ephesians and Colossians, Paul ties being filled with the Spirit to singing, and that's um, yeah, so what's just like an openness to that.
1: Well, it's interesting you bring that up because I, I get this question a couple times when I do my benedictions, uh, at park, like I'll, I'll raise both my hands. Um, and, uh, I don't know if anyone watching this has seen the, uh, this is like the old school Star Trek stuff. You know, the, the Vulcan sign with the hands spread out. It kind of makes a W. I, I, I don't know if I'm. If anyone's going to watch this or if they're listening to it, I mean, you, you may know this. Like, look at the symbol that Spock makes in Star Trek, right? And people have asked me a couple of times, like, why, why do you do that? That's kind of like, why are you doing a Star Trek reference? And, and I'm not. I'm not doing that like this is this is what what uh, you see a lot of even modern rabbis do now uh and it's like this historic practice that symbol is the first letter the Hebrew letter uh sheen for um uh, the first the first letter in the word Shalom, so it's a blessing of peace over the congregation uh, and they make this sign, and then you know Star Trek stole that idea uh, <laughs> And yeah. this thing is like live long and prosper, but it's, a, it, it's the peace. It's, it, so it's a blessing of peace over. Um, but I'm raising my hands when I do that over the, over the congregation. It's just yeah. symbolic.
0: Yeah. No the, true and better, the true and better Spock blessing. Right. <laughs> 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 yeah. Well, Dan, I, yeah, I so enjoyed the conversation. Thanks so much for making the time. Thanks for joining us this week. We hope you enjoyed the episode, found it helpful and beneficial. And as always, if you've got anything you'd like us to discuss, feel free to send in a listener question to us at podcast at parkcommunitychurch.org or just drop a comment wherever you happen to be listening. Thanks so much. We'll be back next week with a new episode.